Some 700 years before the coming of Christ, the, the prophet Isaiah began to write and proclaim the words that I read just a moment ago. And, and, and some of those words inspired the song we sang just a moment ago. There was a 700-year celebration of Advent as the people looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. For hundreds of years, the prophets began to speak of the hope that was coming. Of, of the day that the God, the creator, the majestic one of the universe would break into the space-time continuum and, and, and he would come in the skin of his own creation to redeem his own creation. And, and this is the time of year where we join with that 12th century carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And we actually uh, begin to wait in wonderful anticipation to celebrate the coming of the Messiah. And so over the course of December, we're going to be celebrating Advent. And, and now I realize I've said that word Advent once or twice a couple times here, and, and there's a very real chance that there are people in this theater this morning who don't actually know what that word means, and that's okay. That's okay, because I would feel very confident in believing that, honestly, most Christians don't actually understand the history behind this tradition, and, and even if they did, like, know what it meant. And so uh, you know, we have forgotten or maybe we have never even known uh, why we practice this, this idea of Advent, this idea of peace, love, hope, joy. Or maybe you grew up in a home or denomination and never really heard of Advent in, in that way, like, like I did. I never heard of Advent. I'd only heard of Christmas and Santa and presents, and that's what I understood this whole season to be. But, but you see, like once upon a time, there was a season in the church year known as Advent, and, and the word comes to us from the Latin for coming or arrival. And the purpose for the season was just to anticipate the coming of Christ to earth. That's, that's the whole reason, and, and that's like what I mentioned just a moment ago. It was a season that focused on waiting. And I say once upon a time because it was popular long, long ago, like before the Protestant Reformation. But, but not all Protestant churches picked it up and, and, and went with it over time. It just sort of faded away within most church cultures. So whether you grew up participating in Advent or not, I believe Advent is important to the Christian church. And there are several traditions associated with Advent. Many churches and families, uh, they set out a wreath. I think we have a picture of one. Um, they set out this wreath that has a couple, that has like either four or five candles on the wreath. And, and, um, and each week they share a reading and they light a candle. Does anybody do this in their home? Has anybody ever seen this done before? Like two of us? Cool. Um, so uh, we, this, this symbol, here's the cool thing behind this. The symbol is borrowed from the emphasis throughout all of Scripture that Jesus is the light of the world. All right, Jesus is the light of the world. So each week a new candle is lit in anticipation of Christmas Eve. And that's when the final candle, uh, called the Christ candle, the, big, the bigger one in the middle, is lit to represent Jesus' first advent. And, and through this theme of ever-increasing light penetrating the darkness as the candles are lit, all right, come on, there's, there's some beauty in this illustration, we see a picture of the gospel, all right? And so for me and my family, we'll be lighting our first candle at home tonight. We have our Advent wreath ready and set up and good to go, and uh, we'll be celebrating that with our kids. Maybe you've seen uh, this before in the store and you didn't actually know what it is. I think we have another picture uh, something along these lines is maybe something you hang on the wall or some sort of a, a decorative, you know, thing that has the numbers on it. Um, this is, this is actually called an advent calendar. If you were unaware, uh, or, and if you didn't know what it means, uh, it's usually made up of 24 windows, 
Uh, that's, that's what it's supposed to be. It's 24 windows that usually contain things like stories and scriptures and poems and, and gifts. And I've said this before, we're bad Christians, so we just fill them with candy. And, um, and, and as, but, but here's the deal. As each window opens, as you get a little bit closer, as each window opens uh, and the final day approaches, the expectation increases. The anticipation gets, gets bigger and stronger. But some people just look at like this as other stuff to add to the decor or the holiday spirit. You see, we live in a culture that loves the stuff that surrounds Christmas. And I, don't get me wrong, I love the stuff. I've got the Christmas socks. I've got the ugly sweaters. Christmas is my favorite time of year. I love all of that stuff. I love traditions. But in our rush to celebrate the fun stuff, and even to celebrate the birth of Christ, we want to hurry up and get to the big day. But the church, and this is, this is really the heart of it, historically has used this time not to speed up, but to actually slow down. To, to slow down and to actually feel the angst and the longing for the coming Messiah. All right, and, and, and here's what, in the, in the Old Testament, the people of God, they eagerly awaited, they prayed and they longed and they cried out for the coming Messiah, much like the church should be doing right now for the second coming of Christ. Advent is about reorienting our heart, reposturing our hearts into a position of desiring and longing for Jesus to come, which then leads to an incredible celebration on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day where we can rejoice in the birth of the Savior. The most descriptive word I could use to describe this season is anticipation. It's really one of my favorite aspects of Christmas. It's the anticipation, the wonderful anticipation. You, you, look, you look forward to it, and, and that really is the core of what Advent is. The, the word, again, literally means coming and waiting. It's an anticipation of the second coming of Christ by us reflecting on the first coming of Christ or Christmas. So there, as I mentioned, there are generally four themes to Advent, peace, love, hope, joy, not specifically in that order, not always in that order. And, and we'll hit on all of those over these next uh, few weeks. And so I just wanted you to know why we do a series around the idea of Advent before we dive into today. I want you to know why we're focusing on this over the course of the Christmas season. And I hope uh, some of that explanation maybe helps somebody. So... I don't know if this is happening at your house. I'm, I'm sure it is, but Jen and I are getting into the Christmas spirit. Uh, we, we actually started getting into the Christmas spirit a little over a week ago. It began with us doing what we always do. Uh, one of our traditions is we like to watch uh, classics with our kids, uh, like classic Frosty the Snowman, uh, classic Claymation, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We like to watch the classics with the kids while drinking hot chocolate, in our special Christmas mugs and decorating the house. That's kind of one of our things. It's the first Christmas thing we do together. We do all, we do all of that stuff at the same time. And, and, and then we, uh, we took the kids. We always do this every year. We took them out to a, a Christmas tree farm and, and wear shoals, and we cut down our Christmas tree, and we brought it back to the house. We always uh, take them to Hobby Lobby and let them pick out a new ornament for the tree, just something that's unique and special to them, and we let them pick that out, and then we put their name on it, and and, uh, and we let them put all of their special ornaments on the tree. And so as I was thinking about this series and this message that I was going to teach, I, I, was, I was realizing that, that actually what I actually love is the buildup to Christmas, probably even more than Christmas Day itself. And I know that sounds like sacrilegious, right? Like 
next thing I'm going to say is I like spring but not Easter, right? No, like I want you to hear me out, all right? Because it's the idea of getting into the Christmas spirit that I love so much. The spirit of Advent is like really exciting to me. This idea of finding the true spirit of Christmas is something that we have written about and, and sung, written songs about, written books about, um, and, and really just thought about over and over and over again in, in our Christmas greetings and our books and our songs for dozens and dozens and dozens of years. But I think what God sort of showed me this week is that we find the true spirit of Christmas in, this, in the, the person of the Holy Spirit. So I've been personally, and I'm going to explain how I mean, like what I mean by that. I've, I've been studying through the book of Isaiah just personally, um, and, and I've discovered that as I've read through Isaiah, it, one of the things that I've noticed is that the Holy Spirit has a prominent role in the Christmas story. You know, we often think about the Christmas story being God the Father sending his son to earth. But what was that third person of, of the Trinity doing all that time? When we read Isaiah, we see that at least half a dozen times the Holy Spirit is referenced in context with, with the Christmas story. As prophecies are being proclaimed about the coming of Christ, we find that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon him and the Spirit is going to empower him. That the Spirit is going to be the one who hovers over him and allows him to minister the way he does. When we turn over to the book of Luke, we find out that the Holy Spirit is active there as well. That it's the Holy Spirit that conceives Christ and Mary. It is the Holy Spirit that comes on Elizabeth when Mary comes to visit her. And she is filled with the Holy Spirit as the Spirit points her to Christ in her cousin. We find that the Spirit comes on Zechariah as he prophesies. Right? We find that the Spirit is hovering over the chaos of the Christmas story. And so as we read from the book of Isaiah this morning, you can go ahead and if you have your Bibles, join me in chapter 11. I want to give you some background on this particular uh, book. Isaiah means Yahweh of salvation or, or salvation belongs to the Lord. And that theme runs throughout much of the book. We find that in Isaiah 6, uh, he received his calling, uh, Isaiah did. And in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, he was called by God to be a prophet, continued to serve under the administrations of several kings, King Ahab and King Jotham and King Hezekiah. And, and so from about 740 BC for another 50 years, Isaiah was prophesying and the idea of the coming of Christ was a prominent part of what he prophesied about. Then King Hezekiah's successor came along. Uh, that's Manasseh. And, and, and actually church tradition holds that, that Isaiah was killed by Manasseh. Uh, that Manasseh actually like chopped him right in half. Um, there's some Christmas trivia for you. Just bring that to the Christmas table. And Isaiah, he, he prophesied in a time of great uncertainty. Uh, it was a time when the Assyrian army was marching through Israel. In, in 722 BC, the Assyrian army actually defeated the kingdom of Israel to the north. And so the kingdom of Judah was standing on the brink of potentially being conquered and sent into exile. And so Isaiah is prophesying in this time of, of just great tension and great conflict. And so this book points a lot to the coming Messiah. It points to the birth. It talks about the coming of John the Baptist. It talks about Jesus being anointed and filled by the Holy Spirit. It talks about his ministry of healing. And it talks about the fact that he will be rejected by the people. It points to the idea that he will spread salvation to the Gentiles. It talks about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. It talks about his future coming. The book of Isaiah is such an important just scripture uh, that, that, the, that Paul, the Paul, 
So he alludes to it or quotes from it at least 80 times in his writings, including three of the recorded sermons we have from him. Uh, Jesus quoted the book of Isaiah when he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Maybe that's why it's such an important part of Paul's writing. I don't know, but it is crucial, huge, such a powerful and important book. And so what I want to do is pull one of these passages out of Isaiah 11 this morning because that highlights the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christmas story. It's one of these places where we see Isaiah talking about the Holy Spirit. And what we see is the role the Holy Spirit plays in the Christmas story is both to conceive Christ and to point us to Christ. And as we talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, those are the two things he does. I want you to remember that. So Isaiah 11, and as we read this, I want you to imagine that you're hearing this for the the very first time, that you're living in 700 B.C. and and just a very precarious moment in your nation's history as you stand on the brink of not knowing whether you will be a free person or a person living in exile the very next day. All right, like just have that in your mind. Or maybe imagine like 100 years later as you are living in exile, like as you are living under a foreign occupation and you hear that there is hope coming, that even in the midst of this uncertainty and turmoil and conflict and chaos, there there is a king that is emerging that will bring you peace. And if you're taking notes, that's going to be our, 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 our message for this morning is the spirit of peace. That's what we're going to be looking for as we read through Isaiah 11. And so I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll go back and talk about it along the way. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay. So there's a lot there, and we're going to go down, and we're going to sort of break it down and and talk about what some of this means. Isaiah talks about the Spirit coming upon the Messiah that is coming. Isaiah talks about the Spirit more than any other Old Testament writer. Uh, And as we see a theme emerging from this passage, that, that one of the roles that the Holy Spirit plays in the Christmas story is bringing the Spirit of peace. We see predator lying down with prey. We see them lying down just together in in peace and harmony and unity. So so peace was a major theme in the book of Isaiah. He talks about it just several times throughout Scripture. And he is not writing at a peaceful time in his life. You have to understand. All right, He he is writing during a period of turmoil and conflict and chaos. It is is nuts what's happening. And the, the word shalom that we use to translate into peace that he's using here, actually carries with it something much broader than just like peace as we think about it. All right, it means 
It means the coming of wholeness and fullness. Peace in that sense. Peace, peace in, in the sense of being made whole, complete, and full. That word shows up actually 235 times in Scripture. Now, we associate peace with the coming of Christ. We should. We associate peace with the coming of Christ. And when we think about the Christmas story, we think about peace. When we think about it in, in Isaiah 9, when we are told uh, that one of his names will be the Prince of Peace, we think about in the book of Isaiah, when the book of the book of Micah. Micah was actually a contemporary of Isaiah's, uh, prophesying roughly at about the same time. And, and in Isaiah two five, we find Micah prophesying that the Christ child will be born in the town of Bethlehem. And he goes on to say that he will be the source of peace. We flip over to Luke and we read uh, Zechariah's prophesying about his son John the Baptist and and how his son will point to Christ and how their ministry together will lead to the path of peace. And then, we, and then we read in, in Luke 2 about the angels coming to the shepherds, and we read that they say, peace on earth, goodwill to men. The idea of peace is closely associated with the Christmas story. I can think of like 10 carols just off the top of my head that have the idea of peace being associated with the coming of Christ. We've got Hark the Herald Angels Sing, A Little Town of Bethlehem, Silent Night. Okay, three. But I could like probably come up with a few more if you give me a, a few more minutes. The, see, here's the thing. There's just we we sing this all the time, and we know this to be true. When you think about Christmas, you, one of the thoughts that you you go to is peace. This idea of just peace and harmony. It's closely associated with the coming of Christ, and Isaiah is showing us that in this passage. He's laying this out for us. But here's the problem, though. This is the rub, and this is where I sh- when I really think about the Christmas story, it's honestly anything but peaceful. You've got angels showing up and scaring people half to death. You've got a teenage girl being told that she is going to be the mother of, of, of God and it's God's fault. Right? You've got Mary and Joseph. They now have to live with that stigma all of their lives. You've got a guy on the throne named Herod whose reign could be best described as paranoid brutality. In a time where you were under Roman occupation. After Jesus is born, Herod kills all the boys under two years of age. Listen, this is not peaceful, right? None of this sounds peaceful. If this is the story of peace, then where does it show up? Where do we see it? Where does it come from? And then if we look a little bit at church history, if we look at tradition and we look at the liturgical calendar and the things that we celebrate right after Christmas. So, so December 26th, for example, the day after Christmas, we celebrate the feast of St. Stephen. Do you know who Stephen was? He was the first one to be killed for his faith. December 27th, we celebrate the feast of John the Baptist to commemorate him being beheaded by Herod. On the next day, we recognize the feast of the Holy Innocent those that Herod killed during the birth of Christ. I'm still trying to figure out what's peaceful about this story. And then for many of us, our own experience of Christmas is not peaceful. We can go home and we find our own places of chaos and conflict. There's fighting around the dinner table, parents divorced, houses in shambles, relatives at odds, no money for gifts or or even mourning the loss of a loved one during this season. I know something in that long spill might have struck a chord, so I wonder if I can help somebody this morning. Here it is, church. I think this is just kind of what God's teaching me, and I'm just going to share it with you. Peace has less to do with the state of affairs we live in 
and everything to do with the state of being we rest in. I'm going to say that one more time because I, I think in this season that's supposed to be peaceful, we need to understand that now more than ever, we need to understand this. Peace has less to do with the state of affairs we live in and everything to do with the state of being that we rest in. The state of affairs around us might be chaotic. They might be conflicted. It might be ten, full of tension and, and strife. It might be crazy. The state of being that we rest in has the ability to mimic what Mary experienced when it, when it says she pondered all of this in the quiet of her heart. Peace is not so much about the state of affairs that we're actually living in our circumstances, but the state of being that we rest in. So as we go through this passage, I just want us to keep a couple things in mind. One, uh, the character of God is highlighted in this passage. I want you to understand that the character of God is highlighted in this passage. is so beautiful. So I want you to think about this. What can we learn about his character that can help us find peace in the midst of conflict? And secondly, I encourage you to be thinking about some of the practical things that you can do to find peace in the midst of the season. So let's back all the way up to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And we'll sort of walk our way through it a little bit here this morning. Uh, King, <coughs> sorry, uh, <coughs> there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We'll stop there. So just verse 1. All right, so King David was probably one of the most celebrated kings in all of Scripture and all of Israel's history. Uh, his dad's name was Jesse, okay? So what we are reading is that his line is about to be cut off. But there is going to be another that will rise from that stump, and it's Jesus. All right, so just to let you know who we're talking about here, this is, this is who Isaiah is telling us we're learning about. Then we keep reading. It says, uh, verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah has often been called like sort of the theological textbook of the Old Testament. All right, it's, it's, it's because so much of it talks about the attributes and character of God. And when we understand the attributes and character of God, it helps us to think differently and it helps us to honestly live differently. And so I think for us to find peace, first that means that we need to understand the character of God, that we need to elevate and celebrate his attributes. That because the spirit hovers over him and rests upon him, he is full of wisdom and understanding. He knows how to lead well, and he is filled with counsel, and he, 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 has, he has might, and he can implement plans that are righteous. He is filled with knowledge and fear of the Lord. It speaks to his holiness in this passage. To find peace, we have to meditate on his character. It goes on, verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So two verses there. Jesus doesn't judge by appearances only. All right, He judges with righteousness. It's, it's really about, like, God's standard. Do we trust in God's standard and his righteousness? One of the things that's fascinating to me uh, is that before we get to the predator and prey lying down together, before we get to this peaceful, harmonious, beautiful, 
description in the, in, the, in the coming verses, we actually see a little bit of violence. It says that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Before peace prevails, there are some pretty harsh actions here. And it's because, I think this is why, peace can't prevail except with the eradication of sin. Peace cannot prevail until sin is eradicated. And that's one of the things that he brings. He brings harsh action to the presence of sin and wickedness before establishing peace. That's what we're going to continue to read. Verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jesus was clothed in divine attributes. He was covered in divine attributes. This is not about a human ego approach to leadership. He is clothing himself with divine attributes. And so we look at these. As we look at uh, wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord and righteousness and justice and faithfulness, you know what we see? We see the character of God. And in living in the peace of God begins with an awareness of these things. And I would argue this, that as we are an extension of the incarnation today, we are the church, we are the body of Christ, we can pray that the Holy Spirit would conceive these things in us as well. Okay, so 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit conceived Christ and Mary, and he is still conceiving Christ in each of us today as we are the body of Christ here on this earth right now. We find peace when we pray that these attributes of Christ actually become attributes of us. They become ours as well. Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit adopts us as God's children, that we are part of God's family. And by that, you know what what ends up happening is we begin to take on the family likeness. When we're adopted into the family, we start to look like the family. We start to to take on some of these attributes and these characteristics. And so peace begins with an awareness of the character of God, elevating and celebrating his divine character, and then praying that the Holy Spirit would conceive that character in us as well. Let's keep reading. Uh, We'll read three together here. Uh, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. All right, so in these verses, we find the power of God bringing things together that do not belong together. Right? You have predator and prey lying down together. That's not supposed to happen. I've watched a lot of Planet Earth. I've watched a lot of nature shows. That's not the way it works. Right? That's not supposed to happen. Isaiah is talking about a peace that is almost unnatural and unfathomable. All right? He's talking about an an abnormal, supernatural, amazing peace. And here's the thing. God has the ability to bring things together that do not belong together. I think this room is a testament of that. We wouldn't, most of us wouldn't know each other if it weren't for Jesus Christ. We would have no reason to come and do this. We would have no reason to spend time together. You, you would just probably hang out with the people that you work with or the people that live beside you at your, in, in your neighborhood. But God has the ability to bring things together that do not belong together. That's how powerful he is. When I was preparing this, it reminded me of something sort of close to home. 
we don't have quite the situation of a predator and a prey at our house, but we had a few feral, feral kittens uh, show up at our home, I think like over summer maybe. It was, it's been a while. And, um, and, and long story short, uh, there's now just one. And, um, and, and this, this one cat has basically become our cat because, you know, uh, my wife fed him and put a collar on him. And we built him a house. <laughs> so, so he's ours now, I guess. He's, he's our cat. I never thought I would be a cat owner, but here I am. So, but here's the thing. At the beginning of, of, of this cat, his name's Oreo, at the beginning of Oreo's stay with us, um, Samson, our, our, our big, you know, lab mix, um, he did not like this cat. And in fact, he would go outside and chase this cat. I've never seen a cat literally run up a tree, but this cat literally up straight up the tree. Like he would chase the cat right up the tree. He would bark at it. Uh, he would, you know, chase it down and, and try to try to you know eat it or something. I don't know what he tried to do, but uh, he would go after this cat. And 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 what's interesting is I've just noticed that over the last like month or two, uh, they that's not really the things the not really the way things are right now. Uh, they're actually like kind of friends, and. and they're not actually kind of friends. Like, they're really, like, actually good friends. Like, they really care about each other, it seems. Uh, they get along. And, and, and so what, I, what I've witnessed is uh, Samson lying down on the patio and the cat actually cuddling up next. Um, Samson will go outside uh, to go to the bathroom or do something, and the cat will run up to him and, and like, greet him and, 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 and kind of wrap around his legs and weave in and out underneath him. Uh, I've actually seen them like touch noses several times, like they're kissing or nu- kissing or nuzzling or something. Like it's crazy. I don't know what's happening, but but and it's weird because in my mind, you know what? Like they're mortal enemies, right? Cats and dogs—they're not supposed to mix. They're not supposed to go together. But they are friends. They've done a complete 180 from before. I was trying to narrow down illustrations of similar stories with people, like people that were enemies that became friends. Or, or not even enemies, just, just from different walks of life, from maybe different cultures even, and just unlikely people coming together. And, and you could probably think of maybe one or two. I've read several in the news, and we don't have time to, to go through all those. But, but these are the stories that fuel us as people, right? They're inspirations of humanity. I think just one, just one I was reading about, this is a couple, like two, two, three years ago, was this, uh, this 22-year-old uh, young rapper from New York. Maybe you read this. It was in like New York Times or something. This, this young rapper from New York uh, went down to Florida and met this 82-year-old lady who lived in Florida uh, because they, they met playing words, of friends to, words with friends together on, you know, the phone. And, and they played like over 300 games and they became friends and they actually chatted beyond the game. And then he went down and just like met her. And it was such like a heartwarming. These are the stories that like fuel us because they give us just this, this there's just this inspiration of humanity there. When things come together that don't belong together, when the underdog finds victory, when the unlikely hero emerges, when the unexpected happens, these are the stories that like fuel our imaginations. When, when the little hobbit is the one that saves Middle Earth, that half of you got that one. That's okay. Or when the Capulets and the, the Montague, whenever these two can find love with one another. It's, it's when these things that don't fit together come together. It's about a shepherd boy who becomes best friends with the Prince of Israel. And they remain friends, both of them knowing that one day the shepherd boy will actually be the one to sit on the throne. 
It's what happens when Matthew begins his book with the lineage of Christ, and we find prostitutes and murderers and foreigners and all kinds of misfits in the line of Christ. It's what happens when you've got Paul, who is arresting and murdering Christians, and Ananias, whose name is on that target list, finding that they have to lean into one another and rely on one another, and when they do, they write church history. It's what happens when the creator comes in the skin of his own creation and is laying down in a manger. Come on, somebody, this is our Lord. It is, it is when the lion of Judah becomes an infant and the king lies in a manger and then a lamb is nailed to a cross. Things that don't belong together. The power of God brings them together and it is in that space that redemption and hope and peace can be found. The problem is, is that we live in the now and the not yet. We live in the now and the not yet. See, these stories are stories that drive us and fuel us, but they are not always real life for many of us. They're just glimpses into the supernatural reality that Christ has brought, but we don't always realize that in the day-to-day life that we live. Did Jesus rule the earth? Did he bring peace to the earth? Are we perfected in Christ? Yes. Has he saved us? Yes. And yet we still live in the gap between the now and the not yet. And every now and then we get a window into heaven where we see the reality that has come and is to come. And that's where we need peace. I think a lot of us find that we go home for Christmas or we have people come to us maybe. And we find that things are not what we want them to be. We're not just playing over the cobra's hole. We're going into it. We're, we're, we're not just, uh, we're, we're going into the lion's den. For some of us, the holidays, they bring out old habits. They bring out bad habits. Brings out feelings that you thought you had dealt with. For some of you, it's a, it's a lot uh, more serious than that. For some of you, it's the scars of abuse. It's the bitterness of a divorce. The wounds that drugs left is the difficult things that you face when you go home and, and for the first time there's an empty chair that reminds you of the emptiness that you have in your heart. It's when you go to a place that you call home, but the older you get, the more you realize it never really was home to begin with. So how do you find peace in the midst of that? How do you find peace in the center of that chaos and that tension? How do we, how do we discover that and how do we find that peace. I think the first thing that we do is we got to go back to the character of God and we celebrate and we elevate and we worship his character. And we ask that the Holy Spirit conceive that character in us as well. And then I think the second thing we do is we trust in the power of God to bring together things that don't belong together. As we see predator and prey lie down together, I think the first thing that we have to ask ourselves is are we the predator or are we the prey? And I would suggest this morning that most of us probably all of us at some point in our life, in our workspaces, in our families, in our relationships, in our spheres of influence, we have all been both predator and prey. So which are we doing? And then I would say we've got to find a way to aggressively pursue peace. Psalm 34, 14 says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's not just something that we wait to descend upon us. Another translation of that verse actually says uh, that, that we have to work hard at living in peace with others. Sometimes we have to fight for peace, church. Uh, seek peace and pursue it and work hard at living in peace with one another. It means that one of us has to lie down. 
That's ultimately what I'm getting at. One of us has to lie down. The wolf and the lamb are lying down. One of them had to, to go down first. It's always riskier when you're the lamb. What if you did an experiment this Christmas where you laid something down? Maybe you laid down your opinions or your preferences or your rights or your right to be right. This isn't a magic formula, and it doesn't, like, ensure peace. But what I see in this passage, when I look at what's happening in this passage, I see rest. It is entering into rest when you are surrounded by those that can devour you and destroy you. The power of God can bring together things that don't belong together. Seek peace and pursue it. Peace is about a restored order, restoring things to the way God intended it to be. So back to Isaiah. All right, here's our uh, last verse for this morning, Isaiah 11, 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord uh, as the waters cover the sea. Okay, so conflict essentially will dissipate when the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth. That's all. Uh, Conflict will dissipate when the knowledge goes forth and fills the earth. That's when peace will happen at that moment. And I think for those of us who are followers of Christ, uh, the more we are filled with the knowledge of Christ, the more we are honestly able to find peace and then pursue it and then live in it. I think for those who maybe don't know Christ this morning, I think that that is the most amazing gift you can receive this Christmas. I don't mean just like like know him up here. I mean like know him deep in your spirit. Uh, you, you know him and you have a relationship with him and he knows you and he has a relationship with you. The story of Christmas is not just about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ leaving his throne and coming to earth. It's about the sacrifice on the cross 33 years later when he eradicated sin. Peace can come into your life on a very personal, individual level when you allow Christ to eradicate the sin in your life. And the Holy Spirit rests upon you and begins to conceive the character of Christ in you. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that this morning. Before you leave, go to the care room, come find me, go find somebody else, whoever, and tell them that you want to start that relationship with Christ. When the knowledge of Christ fills the earth, we will find peace. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point to Christ. He conceives Christ in Mary, and then he points us to Christ. What if our lives pointed to Christ? What if, our, what, what if we did our role in bringing peace on earth this season by us pointing others to Christ? Whether that's in the workplace, making a decision to lay down your preferences, or in your family, laying down your right to be right, we can always find practical ways to make our lives point to Jesus. As I said at the beginning, peace is not so much about a state of affairs that we live in. It has everything to do with the state of being that you rest in. The Holy Spirit is the true spirit of Christmas, and he is the spirit of peace. He brings peace to us. And as we reflect and as we elevate and as we celebrate the character of Christ and as we ask the Holy Spirit to conceive that character in us, as we rely on the power of God to bring together those things that don't belong together, and as we allow our lives to point others to Christ, we may be able to see a small window of peace that is promised. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much that you sent your son, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. God, we don't always see it in this world that we live in. 
but we know that you have brought it. We know that you have won it on the cross. We pray for your grace as we live in the land of the now and the not yet. God, help us not only experience your peace, but also let us be conduits of it. Let us take that peace to others. Let us live it out with our lives. God, we pray that the character of Christ will be conceived in us. And we pray that we would live our lives out in such a way that they would point only to you. God, I pray that you would be the Prince of Peace over Legacy City Church this morning, over each and every person here today. Let the peace of God rest on them and reign in them. And it is in Jesus' name I pray.